Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Our text today is continuing in our series. It's going to take us into the first part of the fall on a message of return, lessons from the minor prophets. Now, what we're doing in these remaining summer weeks and leading into the early weeks of fall is we're going to be considering the minor prophets thematically, looking at one sermon per minor prophet at the overall message and what is being communicated by the prophets of the Lord to his people and then ultimately uh, the appropriate application for us as well. And today I want to speak to you on this subject, get ready for the day of the Lord. Get ready for the day of the Lord. Now, we all know that warnings are quite important. Uh, Warnings uh, for danger keep us from harm. And weather warnings are a particular type of warning system, but they are especially important in spring and summer. Uh, We have smartphone apps, and we have wireless emergency alerts, and we have public warning sirens in a lot of communities and towns, as well as local radio broadcasts and television stations that put out those warnings. If you've got one of those little NOAA radio uh, warnings that it will scare you first of all when the thing goes off because you think the apocalypse has come Um, but at any rate they are for the purpose of protecting life physically and as we think about the different warnings that we encounter in life we can draw a parallel with spiritual warnings and I believe spiritual warnings are even more important and the prophets of God served in a sense as a warning system for the people of God. We don't know a lot about Joel the man, but his name means Yahweh is God. He's identified as the son of Petuel uh, who preached to Judah. He was a man who was very interested in Jerusalem, Joel was. And he also referenced the priest and the temple, which reflected that he had some familiarity with the center of worship. Now, he doesn't mention specific kings. A lot of times these kings that we find in the uh, openings, the introductions of the books are helpful because they're, they're placeholders in a sense because we can get some idea of context even if we don't have specific dating or years or whatever it might be. Uh, and he doesn't do that. But it is thought that it was written somewhere around 835 B.C. And the focus is clearly on judgment. It's on judgment specifically of the covenant people of God and on the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, suggesting that Joel may have lived there, possibly even in Jerusalem. Um, And he's referred to as a pre-exilic prophet, meaning that he prophesied before the fall of the northern kingdom and before the fall of the southern kingdom. Now, just for a little basic outline of the book, in the opening chapter in the first 14 verses, He tells this incredible story about a plague of locusts and everything that went along with that. And they served as an instrument of judgment. Picking up in verse 15 of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 32, he reflects on and anticipates the day of the Lord, which I think is the central theme of the message. And then in chapter 3, we have the day of the Lord in the future, which is the ultimate events uh, are the ultimate events that will take place uh, that we can anticipate from the scripture. Now I believe the key verse is found in Joel 1 and verse 15 and here's what it says. Woe because of that day 
For the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Now, Joel follows by giving us specific information about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is marked out by a pouring out of the judgment of God on the enemies of God. It's also marked out by the pouring out of blessings on the people of God. So we have this balance here between what God is doing in judgment according to his holy character and then what God is doing in grace and mercy for his people as a divine blessing. And we find this idea of the day of the Lord many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's an emphasis in the Old Testament on what I believe is the nearness and the imminency of this event as well as a future fulfillment. And one of the things that you'll note when you're studying prophecy, whether it be the minor prophets or the major prophets or any other prophetic writings in the Old Testament in particular, is that there will be a dual f- fulfillment. This makes the interpretation a little bit challenging, but there's a dual fulfillment. Oftentimes, the prophet is referring to something that's happening in real time, in the context of the people, in that moment, but then he's talking about something that's also coming in the future in terms of a dual fulfillment of the prophecy. And we'll uh, unpack that just a little bit as we move forward here uh, this morning. Now, the day of the Lord ultimately points to the end of time when Christ will return for judgment and establish his eternal kingdom. And God will intervene for both judgment and salvation. And what I want us to look at as we look at a number of key passages throughout this short three-chapter book is I want us to consider some realities of what's going on in that day, what was happening then, and what we understand today from a biblical worldview. And the first is this. We understand that creation is broken and undone because of sin. Creation is broken and undone. Notice in Joel 1 and verse 4, he says, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So here's Joel's ministry. It's prompted by a cataclysmic plague of locusts. Now, presumably, the people had never experienced something of this nature, at least not to this degree. And it's greatly affecting their way of life. And he's not announcing a coming judgment of the Lord, but rather he's talking about something that happened in their time a time that was devastated by swarms of locusts that did this incredible damage. And there's more than 30 mentions of uh, locusts in the Bible, uh, 17 of those in the Old Testament and the remainder in the New Testament. And uh, basically a locust is a grasshopper. It's like a super grasshopper, if you will. And it adapts to the environment very easily. The most familiar reference to the locusts in the Old Testament is probably the Exodus, Uh, When Pharaoh wouldn't let the people of God go from Egypt, what does God do? God releases these plagues, and one of them is the locust attack. Now, the reason for the plague in Joel is that God's judging the people for covenant unfaithfulness. And God would also judge in a future day of the Lord, uh, which is the message on a greater scale. Now, the plague was so unusual that Joel tells them, hey, you're going to tell your children about this. 
I mean, there's these life markers, these, these events, the things that happen. We know exactly where we are. We know what time it is. We know what happened. We know who was there. And we have all these vivid memories of it. Joel is saying to them, listen, this is so bad. You're going to tell your kids about this. You're going to tell them about what has taken place here under the hand of God. Now, I know most of you are probably not locust experts. You probably maybe have never even read anything on it. Uh, but there is a little modern-day parallel to this in terms of the physical locust. Uh, in eastern Africa, they began to experience a locust invasion in 2019. Locusts came into the region in record numbers, and they move in these large numbers. And it's incredible because they multiply by a factor, get this, of 20 every 90 days. So these are fast multiplying. They destroy large swaths of vegetation and crops, and they threaten livelihoods and food security. And desert locusts can swarm with as many as 150 million locusts per square kilometer. They also fly with the prevailing wind. So whichever way the, the prevailing wind is shifting, that's where the locusts are coming from. So you definitely don't want to be downwind when there's a locust outbreak because they're probably going to end up in your area. Joel tells Judah that they should consider their condition and mourn with all of the emotion and the passion of a young widow. So here's what he pictures. Here's what he envisions. The priests are mourning. The land is mourning. The grain and the drink offerings have been cut off. And there's all sorts of trouble because of of what has taken place. Locusts appear in the Bible when God is disciplining his people or issuing judgment. The Bible says that all of creation groans and cries out for renewal. Listen how Paul puts it in Romans 8 and verse 22 and 23. He said, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption in the redemption of our bodies. Sin, in effect, is rebellion against God. Brokenness is what sin produces. It describes the effects of sin. So we would say that in a general sense, because of sin, every part of creation was subjected to a curse. Under that, creation groans, the ground produces thorns and thistles and weeds, all of Eve's daughters have been uh, in a position to labor painfully in childbirth. Death entered into the world. And now the scripture says that the entirety of creation longs for the day of liberation. All of creation longs for the day when there's no longer any death. There's no longer any destruction. There's no longer any disappointment. Instead, it's blessings in the presence of God for those who have faith in him. Now, in a future sense, there's also the imagery of a huge swarm of locusts in the book of Revelation. We're not exactly sure what these uh, in, in supernatural creatures are, but they're presented as a menacing army in Revelation chapter 9. I think it's a description of what is unleashed by our ultimate spiritual enemy. And yet, even in that, God will use it to chastise the world and Israel in particular. But now that's the big story, right? That, that's, the, that's the big narrative of what was taking place and what we might understand. But there is a personal application to this. 
And the personal application of this is that in a personal sense, sin brings consequences to our lives. Or if we might draw a parallel here, the locusts bring destruction to our lives. They bring all sorts of havoc. So what do we do when we encounter sin? What do we do when we've uh, come against God and, and disobeyed what he has had for us or ignore what his direction is for us? Well, I think in part we have to see our sin for what it is. We have to call it what it is and depend on the Lord in humility. We have to depend on that grace and that mercy, which is super abundant, that's poured out on us through the love of Jesus Christ. And we need to know that God has empowered us in his word and his spirit to be overcomers. And we don't have to remain in a broken and undone condition. We can be re- redeemed, reconciled to God, and in right standing with him. Creation is broken and undone. But we know in this also that the judgment of God is certain. Now, Joel urged the religious leaders to put in motion a time of national lament. This language here in Joel 1 and verse 14, which I'm about to read, is a reminder to us that God responds to his people, not just individually, through the Spirit of God indwelling us and the Word of God guiding us, But God responds to his people also collectively. And we forget about the significance of what it means to come before a holy God as the people of God when we need renewal, when we need the Lord to move, when we need the Lord to relent. We forget about how important this is. And he says in Joel 1 and verse 14, announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God, And cry out to the Lord. Now what were the people doing? They were to fast as a demonstration of their grief and their remorse. They were to come together in a sacred assembly to show their collective sorrow. In fulfillment of Solomon's prayer of consecration for the temple, they came to the house of the Lord your God to express their repentance. And they pled with the Lord. Now, this may have included a psalm of lamentation like uh, Psalm 74 as they voiced their prayers. Whatever it was, it was a, a call for them to collectively cry out to God. And with that, Joel introduces the day of the Lord, which is the main theme of the book. One commentator said that it permeates every other part of the book. And nowhere else in the Old Testament is the day of Yahweh treated in a sustained way like it is in the book of Joel. So what did the locusts do? The locusts destroyed the crops. In the, in the same way, the coming day of the Lord will be one of destruction. The prophets saw the plague as an ominous sign of something extraordinary, and he issues an alarm. He issues a warning, and he appears to bring together two prophetic passages that the audience likely would have been familiar with. He turns the warning against his own people and makes reference to Ezekiel 30 in verse 2 and 3, and then also Isaiah 13 in verse 6. So in Ezekiel it says, well, alas, for the day, for the day will soon be here, Yahweh's day will soon be here. Isaiah 13 in verse 6 says, well, because Yahweh's day will soon be here. It's coming with mighty ruin from the Almighty. 
So here's Joel, and he's like that Noah weather radio that you've got on your nightstand or maybe somewhere else prominent in your house. And you don't know exactly what's coming. It's looking a little bit cloudy outside. You might be expecting that something's coming that's not going to be necessarily great. And all of a sudden, the, the alarm goes off. The warning goes off. And he's saying, judgment is coming. You need to understand the consequences of judgment. Notice what they are in verse 16 through 20 of chapter 1. The lack of food. No sacrifices for worship. The seeds are devastated. The storehouses are empty. The grain is dried up. The cattle are confused. The sheep are suffering. Fire is burning the pastures. Fire is burning the trees. The streams are drying up. There's trouble everywhere because of this. But then there's a promise over in Joel 3 and verse 2. And here's what he says in Joel 3 and verse 2. Then I'm going to drop down to verse 14. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Now verse 14 says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. A time is coming when God will judge the earth. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. The decision that's being made here, though, is different from what I have sometimes heard it presented in preaching. Sometimes in preaching, this valley of decision is built up as this grand invitation to the people to come to God. But the problem is that's not where the invitation comes in Joel. This is God's decision. This is God's decision regarding the fate of individuals and nations. So in the valley of decision, it's not the people deciding for something. It's God who's already decided. And now that's going to be communicated. And right after the description of the prophecy, the focus shifts to the Lord's millennial reign in the future. Now, valleys in the Old Testament were often places where people gathered. They'd gather for battles. They'd gather for decisive days of judgment. And here the picture is the nations will be gathered and wickedness will be judged. I think the parallel to this is the Olivet Discourse and the Gospel of Matthew. And I think that the reality of judgment is not in doubt. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. I often say it this way. I always say this, in fact, when I'm uh, sharing in a, in a memorial service, because I think it's most appropriate for us all to consider our mortality and our uh, short t- stay on this earth in those times. Every person has an appointment with God. Every person. We don't know the time. We don't know the date. We don't set it. We get summoned to it. God's the one who decides when that bookmark of our life is at the end. And for us, we need to be ready for that. The Bible describes God as the judge of all men. And we need to anticipate that and understand that the judgment of God is certain. And that, then that brings me to the invitation of God. And that is God calls people to return. He calls people to return. Now, the people heard the warning of judgment, and in light of that, they should repent. But here's what Joel 2 and verse 12 says. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. A return 
which indicates repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Or as we would often say, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior is the easiest way to understand it. And he says to them, rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Now, there's this expression of mourning in the Jewish culture that was symbolized by the tearing of the garments. Joel knew something very important. I don't want you to miss this. If you miss all the history and all the background and everything else, I want you to hear this. He knew that people can outwardly act in religious ways or act in ways as though they're moving toward God and inwardly their heart might not be right with God. And he's making the point that it's not something that's just outward. It's something that is truly a transformative life change to where we are fully in with the Lord. And understand, this is a two steps forward, three steps backwards sometimes. Um, life is a, is a winding and meandering path. It's not as though we're all on this upward perfect trajectory toward uh, glorification and everything smooth in between. We, all of you know that's not true. But the point is, what is the pattern of our lives? Are we captivated by the glory of God? Are we drawn into the things of Christ in such a way that our hearts are fully in with him? And are we hearing, if we need to hear, the call to return? Are we hearing that call? I believe that the motive for repentance is the character of God. Verse 13, the second part of verse 13 says, For he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and he relents from sending disaster Joel 2 in verse 13 here's the good news today you can come to God in confidence knowing that he is gracious and merciful he is slow to anger he overflows with steadfast love and when we return to him with all of our hearts, he withholds what we deserve. That's mercy. And he pours out on us and gives us what we don't deserve, which is grace. And this essentially is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And by faith in him, we can experience the grace and the mercy of God. I like the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 116 and verse 7. He said, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. He's been good to you. Now, you might not follow this, but there is in our country a significant problem with uh, runaways. And the problem is complex. It's multifaceted. It's not a simple reason why. A lot of it's the drug epidemic. Uh, there's health, mental health issues, and all sorts of reasons. But you might also not know that for many years, the Greyhound Bus Lines has partnered with the National Runaway Safe Line to reunite runaways with their families and guardians. In fact, since 1995, the Home Free Program, which is what they call it, has provided 16,000 free bus tickets. All a person needs to do is to be on the runaway report, be willing to return home, 
and have somebody willing to receive them at home. The call is to come home. And it's facilitated in a very practical way. The spiritual call for us is to come home. It's God promising to receive us when we return to Him. When God calls people to repent, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's a call to come home because God made us. He he created us in His image and in His likeness. He's loved us with an everlasting love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God is inviting us to come home to Him, to return. Maybe that's your situation today. The locusts maybe have eaten some significant things in your life. It could be related to your spiritual relationship with God directly. It could be related to a broken relationship and a family. It could be related to some other disappointment in life that came because of your decisions or others. And what you are in need of is to return to the Lord for his help. And here's the beauty of what happens next. God will show compassion on all who return. He'll show compassion on all who return. God is a loving father whose heart breaks when his children turn away. And to return is is simply being broken and understanding your situation and having humility to come back to God. You're seeing yourself as God sees you. You're surrendering to him so that he can make all things new. And that's what he specializes in. He specializes in in renewal. He specializes in making all things new. So no matter what has happened in your past, no matter how badly the locusts have brought destruction in your life or your family or, or your circumstances, God can restore all of that. Now, I'll never forget, I had a good friend that went through a tremendously difficult situation many years ago and it was just broken by what happened and I can remember when he began to be renewed it wasn't by anything of his doing it was something that happened in his family but when he began to be renewed and things started to turn as they often do you know when it's just when it's the darkest it seems like that little ray of light just shines in and all of a sudden we say okay we can do it we can make it now I remember him saying to me God is restoring what the locusts have eaten. And I said, praise the Lord. He does that. Joel 2 and verse 23 says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. So what's God promising to do? He's promising to send the former rain and the latter rain. Ancient Israel had no irrigation system to speak of. They relied on rain. The former rains, uh, literally speaking, would fall in October and November through the end of the year. They would help replenish the soil in preparation for the next planting season. The latter rains would fall in March and April in order to ensure a bountiful harvest. And these rains that came were, they were, they were life. Just like today, the importance of water. We take for granted uh, that we have access to clean water, potable water that sustains us in life, that grows crops, that cleans the things that we use, that we can drink and survive on. We, We take these things for granted. 
And in fact, the last uh, number of years, there have been some incredible drought situations in the American West, for example. It experiences more droughts than other places, it seems, at least historically, with some years and circumstances more substantial than others. And recent years have brought dramatic and historic conditions. In fact, if you read up on it, lakes and riverbeds have dried up, water supplies have been in peril, been no answer in sight. And people are like, we're never going to have water again. This is not going to be replenished. That lake that was out there that we're finding all the dead bodies in, the Lake Meads and other places in the West, we're not going to get water anymore. Well, then the winter of 2022 and 2023 came. The Department of Water Resources in California maintains 130 snow sensors throughout the state of California. The manual survey recorded 126.5 inches of snow depth at what's called the Phillips Station. And that was at 221% of average for the spring. Now, obviously, it doesn't solve the problem long term. But it's just a reminder that when the drought conditions seem to be the worst. It's like, what are we going to do? First, we had the locust eating everything. And now we've got the condition with our crops. And we've got all these situations going on. What are we going to do? Well, the Lord is going to bless. And he is going to sustain what he has created and who he has redeemed in us. So what we need is we need the Lord to send a spiritual renewal to open the windows of heaven, to end the spiritual drought, and to give us a sense of the power of his spirit in our lives. Listen to what Joel says here in in chapter 2, beginning of verse 25. I'll read 25 and 26. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. God's people are promised here to experience his blessings and the responsibility to worship him. And he says in verse 27, you will know that I am present in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Now, we're not given a lot of specifics here in Joel, but the people had evidently slipped into spiritual complacency and apathy in their relationship with God. So what does Joel do? He deals with the past and he points them to the future. When restoration comes, all will know the presence of the Lord and set their hearts to follow him. Now, I want you to think about the actions of God, uh, all the way from the creative act of God throughout the narrative of Old Testament history and even today what we experience. The blessings, the power, the presence are all intended to point people to the fact that there is one true living God. That's the point. So when God did these miraculous things in their midst, it wasn't just for the sake of doing it. He was doing it so that they would know that he is Lord. And it says in verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
these verses refer ultimately to a future day. However, Peter uses them at Pentecost to suggest a partial fulfillment then, as well as a spiritual application today as well. And what he does is he connects Joel's prophecy with the Holy Spirit's coming and the commencement of the church. Is that not when the pouring out of the Spirit began, the birth of the church, and we have these miraculous signs that accompanied it? And in light of this, Paul gave some advice to the Romans that I think is fitting for us today as well. He said in Romans 13 and verse 11, since you know the time, it's already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So Paul says, listen, we don't know how close we are to the end, but I can tell you we're closer than we've ever been before. And if it is true that we don't know how close we are to the end, but we're closer than we've ever been before, then what also must follow is that we need to awake. There's no time for spiritual complacency. There's no time for spiritual apathy. There's to be a fervor and a zeal for the Lord because of our passion for him and our relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And the approaching day of the Lord should cause us to get ready and to be drawn toward holiness. And I firmly believe that one of the primary purposes of prophecy, in addition to helping us understand some basic framework and timing of things that are coming in the future, I think one of the main purposes of it is our own personal holiness and sanctification. I think if we actually believe this stuff and we actually believe that that we're going to be accountable to the Lord and that there is an answer to what we need, which is grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, then we need to be ready. And to be ready, you first of all have to know the Lord. And then the directive is to be walking with the Lord to live for him, to know that he alone is God, and in faith, live your life out and wait on what the Lord is going to do in the future. I want to come to Joel 3 and verse 16 as the last verse that we consider, and I'm going to come toward a close. Here's what Joel 3 and verse 16 says. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. I love that phrase, a refuge for his people, a stronghold for us. When the Lord's people seek him out, call on him, turn to him with their whole hearts, seek him collectively together, as the people of God, anticipate what God has promised for the future, then the Lord will bless. Joel captures a brief moment in history from the history of Israel where the people turned with one heart to the Lord and the Lord revealed what awaited them. And someone said, such promises have seldom been enjoyed Because such faith seldom endures. Church, the call for us today is a call to faith. In fact, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. 
But with faith, when we diligently seek him, we can honor him. So I don't know where you are in your life today. Maybe the locusts have eaten some stuff and you need renewal. God will meet you there. Maybe you need to return to the Lord. I'll tell you this, don't do it halfway. Fully return. Maybe we all need to be praying collectively as the scripture guides us to. For a collective renewal. For God to do something in our midst that we can only say, that was God's power. That was his blessing. That was the that was the spirit of God blessing us. You know why I think it's so important that we have those moments where we realize it was only God? Because we like to take credit for stuff. And we like to say, well, we did good with that. And all of a sudden the attention's on us. And what we're saying is, God is the one who is good. He is good to us. And we're able to live for his glory because of what he's done through us. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. We're going to come toward a time of close. And Pastor Eric's going to come back and sing a concluding song with us. And then I'll close out our service. Just asking you today, what is, what is God doing in your life right now? What are you learning through his word? By his spirit? Are you drawn near to the Lord today it starts with knowing him and trusting in Jesus Christ the Savior and Lord it follows with a surrendered life say God you've made me you've given me life you've given me spiritual life and I want to honor you with all of it I don't know what your need is but the Lord does and he'll meet you there. He'll help you. He'll show you compassion, which is mercy, and he'll show you grace super abundantly. Almighty God, as we bow before you in these moments, we don't take for granted the help and the strength that we've had to be here together today. We thank you for your word, for your prophets. We anticipate the day of the Lord in the future. We long for it. We pray for it. We await the return of our King. And in the meantime, we want to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to get out of the way to be able to do that. To fully lean on you. And to know that you'll help us and you'll meet us there. I pray, Father, for every home that's represented in this place. I pray that we would have a desire to serve you with all of our hearts. And then as a result of that, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, you'd get the glory for it. So however you see fit to use this message, to use this word, to be led by your spirit, we'll give it over to you and we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.